Before we begin this Bennelong Funds Management podcast, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we are recording and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We celebrate the stories, culture and traditions of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities who work and live on this land and we commit to an ongoing journey of reconciliation and respect. Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of our Key Global Investor podcast series. My name is Holly Old, one of the account directors with Benelong Funds Management. Joining me today is Chris Beddingfield, Crow Principal and Portfolio Manager with Key Global Investors. Chris, welcome. Hey Holly, great to be here actually with you this time in Melbourne. Sure is. Chris, the Key team have released their latest investment perspective article, which is focused around probably one of the most discussed topics by Australians, the housing market. And I thought today was a great chance to hear your thoughts on the housing market and where it goes from here. But I just wanted to start with uh, one sort of simple question I wanted to put to you. March, it's been a really wild ride for one single month of the year. What are you thinking around what's transpired during March and, and if you can give us some thoughts on that? It's been, as you say, a wild ride, no doubt about it. I mean, we backtrack a little bit you know if you go back to january this year there was sort of this sense that central banks were getting towards the end of that the hiking cycle and portfolio did really well in january we're up around ten and a half percent i think in the hedged uh product and around seven and a half percent in unhedged and sort of felt like you know we were getting towards the end of that cycle but you know we sort of bumbled our way through february a little bit and then you know you've had uh, from a macro point of view, yeah, a lot of news in March. We've had, obviously, pretty strong economic numbers coming out of not only the US, but, you know, Australia unemployment seems is staying very low and pretty strong numbers, economic numbers coming out of Europe. Germany was nowhere near as bad as what people thought, the same in the UK. And so the rate height cycle started again and, you know, we got that sort of sell-off. And then, of course, you know, the big news in the middle of the month, you know, Silicon Valley Bank going down, uh, Signature Bank going down, uh, Credit Suisse, uh, my alumni has uh, been taken over by UBS. And so, you know, fears of that, you know, global financial crisis, you know, it's like that PTSD that the market has. It's, oh, no, here we go again, global financial crisis. And then, you know, we saw this massive rally in bond yields. I thought that, you know, some of our stocks get a bit of a kick along because the bond yields were rallying and in the short term they're sensitive to to bond yields and then but they got sold off again because you know that PTSD of the global financial crisis and and so yeah it's just been that just one hit after another and I think we're seeing the equity market in the US bounce back pretty strongly and I think sensibly I think investors are looking at the events particularly on the banking side over the last week and I think sensibly coming to the conclusion that this is not a global financial crisis situation. It's it, There's a couple of unique situations that's happening in the banking sector, there's no doubt about it, but we're not looking at this stage at a wholesale shutting down of credit, Lehman-style moment. I think the equity market is kind of taking that into account. And from our perspective, a portfolio perspective, nothing much has changed. We've just come through reporting season. Most of our investees have reported recently. Not all of them are December period ends, so there's still a couple of companies that haven't reported. And there's always, you know, some disappointments, you know, at, at the margin and there's, and there's some surprises at the upside at the margin as well. And I think by and large, the portfolio is performing in aggregate the way that we thought it should be in terms from an earnings point of view. Prices are just, you know, they're just subject to macro at the moment and there's, there's not much you can do about it in the short term. Um, what I can say is, you know, a lot of our investees have very, very little debt to roll this year. 
those companies that do have debt to roll this year, they've either got asset sales that they've already executed and, and yet to settle, or they have significant undrawn lines of credit that they can use. So our investees are in really good shape if things do deteriorate from here and the earnings are, are still pretty much in line with what we're going for or what we were hoping for. So, um, yeah, not much change, but it's, it's certainly been a lot to keep us, keep us busy and keep us active and, and keep us thinking. Yeah, great. Has been an interesting month, that's for sure. So as I mentioned at the start, Chris, we had a recent investment perspective that you guys produced and and we've distributed and it's focusing around the Australian housing market, which is always an interesting topic for everybody. We've had 10 interest rate rises in a row. Is that correct? I mean, there's been that many. I've lost count of them now, I think. Oh, well, let's call it 350 basis basis points. Fair call. We'll stick to that. All right, excellent. And what does that tell you about the future of house prices in Australia? And have you got some comments on on that? Yeah, it's it's interesting. We, you know, the national housing market's off around 10% since interest rates started to rise. and, And that's kind of, you know, in the very short term, interest rates can do that. Sort of shocks a few people out of the market in terms of people thinking of buying they, they sort of sit back a little bit and they they look at the market and say well I'll just see where this settles before they so that so there was a bit of a buyer strike but I think it's interesting we've also had a a seller strike as well volume on the market is is way down compared to pre-covid levels so we haven't seen a lot of stock come through so not a lot of buying not a lot of selling volumes are down and prices have drifted down over the last 12 months Interestingly, the Australian experience is not unique. We've seen exactly the same in the United States. We've seen the buyers step back a little bit in US housing market, but the sellers have also held on. So, you know, in the US, typically at this time of year, you'd have 1.2 million houses on the market in the US. There's about 400,000 at the moment. So exactly the same as Australia. You've got a seller strike and you've got a buyer strike. And where people are transacting, you know, the prices have gapped down a little, around 10% in Australia. And Year on year in the US, it's kind of flat at the moment, believe it or not. It's actually housing prices are kind of relatively flat year on year. But what's really interesting is we're starting to see, particularly Sydney and Melbourne, clearance rates have picked up and prices, if you look, follow the core logic daily price index, the prices are starting to tick up. I think Sydney's up very close to a 1% so far in March, which is extraordinary given the commentary around interest rates. And a lot of commentators, we think very incorrectly, point to interest rates as the driver of real estate. That's true in the very short term, generally is because of those factors I pointed out, but there's a big sort of different story that's happening in the Australian real estate market that people are aware of, but I don't think gets enough attention. And that story is that at a national level, it's I think you can put forward an argument that we have an undersupplied situation of, of Australian property. We see that in the rental market where rents have been growing at double-digit rates, particularly in Sydney and in Melbourne. We have a sort of a very tight supply market. We have an immigration program that is likely to bring in another 400,000 net people this year. So we have a demand surge. We have tight supply. And then you have a reserve bank, a central bank, that has been lifting interest rates, sending a signal to developers and builders to stop building and stop developing. So not only is supply tight future supply is going to get even tighter. If you look at housing starts in Australia, they're they're falling pretty quickly. The development equation doesn't work. Uh, Regular listeners to our podcast know the way we think about real estate is not about interest rates and it's not about comparable sales. It's, you know, prices relative to the cost of production. And when prices fall below the cost of production, supply stops. You can do whatever you like with interest rates, but if supply stops uh, and, and you need to build more supply in the future, 
prices have to adjust at some stage in order to make the development equation work. And I think we're starting to see that a little bit in Australia. We're starting to see the tightness of the rental market, the tightness in the overall supply of new housing. You've got a really interesting acronym that I've heard you talk about, FORA, as opposed oh, to FOMO. Yeah. I'm kicking Explain my... that to me. Yeah, I'm kicking myself because the... Um, the paper that you alluded to, it went to print. And when it went to print, I, I was thinking that night, I was thinking, oh, I've thought of a great acronym I should have put in there, FORA. Yeah, so I think anyone listening to this podcast have probably heard of FOMO, which is fear of missing out. And I guess the real estate market was like that 19, in 2021, 2022. Uh, oh, sorry, 2020, 2021. Yeah, I think FOMO, fear of missing out, has, has, has changed to FORA, which is uh, fear of renting again. And, uh, and I think that's what's caused a bit of the supply strike that's happening. And there's a very bearish kind of narrative in the residential commentary at the moment. There's a few pretty public people running with this. And the Reserve Bank is running with this story as well, which is that, you know, roughly a third of mortgages in Australia are fixed. And half of those are going to expire, you know, in the next 12 months. So this is this mortgage cliff, fixed rate mortgage cliff that we keep hearing yeah, about. Yeah, the fixed rate mortgage cliff. You know, everything's got to have a cliff because that's scary, right? <laughs> fixed rate mortgage wall, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, that's exactly right. It's the fixed rate mortgage cliff that everyone's talking about. And it sounds scary. Like you can, you can even put some hard numbers around it. I think the RBA says that's 800,000 people is, is on these low rates and those mortgages are going, to, are going to come to market. And that's scary and the tsunami of supply, yeah, the inference is the supply will come as, as everyone re- recalibrates. And I think it's very easy to, you know, from a clickbait point of view to write those things. But if you think about it you know, with a cool head and rationally, if a third of Australian mortgages are fixed, it means two thirds of Australian mortgages are floating. So 66%, call it 67% of Australian mortgages are floating and they've already copped the higher rate. And we haven't seen the supply come through yet. So... If 67% of mortgages have hit the higher rate and they haven't panicked, well, what's to think that half of the next third are going to panic or 16%? Now, I'm sure there's people within there, that gap, that area that, that you know, will need to sell. People always need to sell. It's, that's just part of life, financial reasons, human reasons, whatever. But is it going to cause a tsunami and new supply? Well, we haven't seen it with the 67% of people that have already had the hit. The RBA put out another paper saying that of the people with the fixed mortgages, on average, some of them have higher metrics, leverage metrics, but it's only at the margin. So again, you know, if you look at people on fixed mortgages, around 9% of those uh, people have loan to income ratios above six times compared to 6% of people on variable loans. So yes, it's slightly riskier, but it's not that much more risky. And so I think there's a lot of fear in the market about this mortgage cliff that you talk about. But I think, you know, when you when you really look at it from a logical and a cool perspective, it's it's probably not as bad as, as people say. As I said, almost 70% of people face the rate hike already and they haven't panicked. And the reason they haven't panicked, I do think, is for it. You know, if you think of someone who saved 10 years of their life, they've come up with a deposit, they've bought a house last year or the year before, their decision tree is, well, I'll just hold on. I'll cut back on the Netflixes or the Apple TVs or I'll cut back on some discretionary spending. I'll put off buying the next mobile phone or whatever it is and I'll hold on. That's one decision. Or they can go the other way and say, I'll sell 10% down. I'll torch my equity. I'll probably be out of the housing market now for the next 15 years because I save again. 
and I have to then go into a blistering hot rental market and try and find somewhere to live. So when you frame it that way, yes, the rates are going up, but I'm not sure it's going to lead to a tsunami of supply because of those factors. Yeah, that's really good to hear. I just wanted to ask you one final question. Have we learned anything from previous cycles? What makes this different? A couple oh, of comments yeah. on that. Uh, well, you know, I suppose some people have and some people haven't. I, you're alluding to the, like the, you know, with the banking crisis and, and whatnot and the GFC. Look, I think from a real estate perspective, even from a banking perspective, I, I think there was a lot of lessons learned by regulators, central banks, participants, you know, the banking system, even Ben Bernanke's own words, was wildly unregulated in the United States prior to the GFC. Ben Bernanke, and, sorry, Greenspan, I should have said, you know, truly believed that it was in the banker's own interest to protect the balance sheet, and he got it wrong. He admitted he got it wrong. And after the financial crisis, banks were heavily recapitalised. They pulled back on their risky lending, lending against income rather than assets, we have seen a, you know, a, a lot of discipline sort of re-enter. And I think one of the problems that we have in financial markets is we're always fighting the last war. We're always thinking like that the, the next thing that's going to hurt us was the last thing that hurts. And it never is. I remember after 2001, 2003, 2004, everyone thought it was another tech wreck that was going to bankrupt the economy. And it turned out it was housing. And now it's always, it's the banks and housing that's going to blow up. And it's never that. It's always something else. And in fact, turns out to be sovereign bonds was the thing that kind of you know blew up silicon valley bank you know government bonds was the thing that killed it i mean who would have picked that so yeah we're always fighting the last war but i think we have learned the lessons in the banking system there's always going to be bad banks run badly and and they'll go bad but it's not as systematic as what we saw during the gfc it's not banks levered 50 to 1 lending at 90 percent lvrs against really really full valuations just don't see that that widely and then on the real estate side you know in Australia and the United States I think we've done a tremendous job uh, delevering and ha- making sure that liquidity is there access to liquidity you know, maybe the lessons haven't been learned as well in Europe where leverage is still pretty high but by and large I think a lot of the lessons have been learned and I I do believe whatever the next crisis is it's it's something that no one is talking about it never is as I said so many people always looking in the rear vision mirror for the next accident because they only remember the last accident and it very rarely is. Thank you, Chris, very much for your time today. Your insights have been amazing as always. If you'd like any further information on the Key Global Real Estate Fund, don't hesitate to reach out to your Benelong account manager. Thank you again, Chris, for your time and I look forward to our next chat. Cheers, Holly. It's great to be here. If you enjoyed this podcast or want to know more, Please visit our website, benelongfunds.com, and subscribe to receive our regular insights or contact us directly for more information.